0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor and I spoke with Booker Prize-winning translator Jennifer Croft.
1: Jennifer spoke about her entry into translation and how she has uh, maintained her working relationship with the Polish writer Olga Tokarczuk, uh, who is the Booker-winning writer of Flights, and lastly she talked about the role of AI uh, and tech in translation.
0: It's a really interesting episode, looking at an entirely different field from any we've looked at before on the podcast, and we really hope you enjoy it. Hello, Ellie and I are here uh, via Skype with Jennifer Croft, who's in New York, but has very kindly joined us to um, talk to the podcast. Jennifer, it's it's great to have you on Always Take Notes. Um, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit uh, at the beginning just about about the Booker win last year, what it what it was like and what that meant for your career and what you were kind of doing with your, your translation.
2: Sure. Um, so... It was definitely the most glamorous thing that's ever happened to me and will no doubt be that way for the rest of my life. Um, it was It was also such a wonderful thing for Olga's career. I mean, it's been spectacular for mine, but Olga is someone I've been trying to promote very, very diligently for 10 years leading up to the publication of Flights. Um, the book came out in 2007 in Polish as Bieguni, which in Polish means something like runners, but it's the it's specifically the name of a, of a Russian Orthodox sect that believed that you had to remain in motion constantly or the devil would get you. So there isn't really a translation. And I ended up with flights. And um, after all of those years of trying to publish excerpts in journals and trying to do interviews and essays and starting a Facebook page for her and so on. Um Jacques Testard at Fitzcarraldo Editions took the risk of publishing the whole book and and that was great and we were really happy with that. Um and then we were thrilled when we were long listed. I started reading the other entries for the Booker Prize, which were truly magnificent. I mean I was convinced that a number of them were going to win. Um, when it got to the short list, I became a little bit obsessed with Virginie Pont, translated by Frank Wynne, um, and I hope that, that that the second volume in the trilogy gets longlisted, shortlisted, wins the Booker. Um, this is the Vernon Subutex trilogy. Also, Frankenstein in Baghdad was amazing. So, so when we won, I was in a state of absolute shock, and I think Olga was too. Um, And then we got to tour a little bit. We went to the Hay Festival, which was actually the first literary festival that I ever went to. When I was 18, I studied in Swansea, Wales. Um, So
1: um, you have got a lot more recognition, that more opportunities have come your way?
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, certainly more recognition. And Olga has said the same. So she... Mentioned that when she and her husband were on vacation, she got recognized on the beach, for instance, which was (laughs) unprecedented. I mean, she was out. She's always been a a real celebrity in Poland um, and had been kind of encroaching upon European territories. But, you know, that has happened to me as well. This is my first time living in New York. I moved here in September. And within the literary world here, people definitely know... What I look like. I mean, the the Booker is so well covered, well publicized, and it's taken so seriously. Um, and I think that they do such a good job of selecting the judges, and the judges are so careful. And that's kind of an audience. Yeah, I, I really I have so much love and appreciation for for the Booker
0: and people. Jennifer, could we could we rewind a bit to your your kind of background, but particularly your linguistic background. I was trying to work out reading your biography and, and the, the different work, you know, translating out of Polish and out of other languages. What what did you grow up speaking?
2: I grew up speaking a beautiful variant of the English language known as the Oklahoma dialect. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I grew, up, I grew up completely monolingual in okay. Tulsa, Oklahoma, which, okay. um, as no one should know, is... Located just north of Texas, and and we have kind of the same way of speaking as Texans stereotypically do.
0: That's where David Grant set his his recent book, right? It's about those killings in the in the nineteen twenties. Is that that part of the world?
2: It must be, and I am ashamed to admit that I don't know that book, but I will look it up today.
0: Okay, okay. but so so you grew up entirely monolingual. How did you how did you get into languages, as it were?
2: Um, I. My father is a cultural geographer, so he was a professor of geography, and that got me and my sister looking at maps, and I also always had a sense that I didn't really fit in in Oklahoma. Um, It is kind of part of the Bible Belt. I used to say it's the buckle of the Bible Belt. I don't think that that's true any longer, but it felt very stifling to me when I was growing up, and I really wanted to... Travel. My family didn't have a lot of money, so our family vacations were to a place called Lincoln, Nebraska, which is not, no offense to people from there, but it's not a particularly exciting destination. It was just a four hour drive or so from where we lived. So I started exploring. I I always wrote stories about travel, and um, eventually I just saw on television some Russians who were speaking Russian, and they also showed some um, characters from the Cyrillic alphabet. And I just thought that was so cool. I I started checking out books from the public library and I started teaching myself Russian. And then that kind of launched this chain of events, um, that led to me learning Polish and, um, then subsequently Spanish. I've dabbled in many languages but those are the two main ones that I work with. Were you
1: choosing languages that you felt would be most useful to you as a translator or was it just the languages that you were most interested in personally?
2: Spanish is definitely the language that I was most interested in personally but that came later. So when I was in Um, when I was at university doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma, I majored in English and Russian. I did a double major and I minored in creative writing. And I thought, I didn't really know what translation was, but I thought that sounded like a way to combine those three interests. So I went to the University of Iowa, which offers a really excellent program, an MFA in literary translation. And I was planning to do Russian translation, but for a couple of reasons, I switched over the course of those two years to Polish. One of the reasons is that I really did connect with contemporary women's writing in Poland, like Olga Tokarczuk. I found Olga Tokarczuk during that time, so back in
0: 2002, 2003. And so was the uh, the programme at Iowa was that affiliated with the the writers' workshop there was it under the same roof as that
2: it It is not technically under the same roof, but there's a lot of crossover. Um, I took some seminars in the writers' workshop obviously they're you know very intimately related skills and some of the students from the writers' workshop would take our translation classes as well if they had another language or there's also a great program also separate at the university of iowa called the international writers program which brings 30 to 35 people depending on the year from all different countries to the university of iowa for the fall semester Um, and some of the people in the writers workshop would be assigned to translate um a writer from Thailand even if they didn't have Thai they would just kind of work it out together so it's just kind of an experiment in translation but there was there was a lot of exchange which was really nice.
1: So after you uh, finished your uh, degree in Polish what, what was the first work that you undertook and how easy was it to to, to obtain that?
2: Um, well the first, the first book that I translated from Polish was something that I did for my master's thesis, which I actually still need to, um, I keep meaning to go back and polish it and submit it for publication. It's a book by Hannah Kroll, who writes Reportage, which is one of Poland's kind of finest, most interesting genres. Um, It's called So You Are Daniel. And then I I think the first publication that I had from Polish might have been in 2003, by a Polish poet named Majana Kielar, But at at that time, I wasn't really earning money from translation. Um, I received a Fulbright to go to Warsaw, to the University of Warsaw for one year after I finished my master's degree. Um, And that kind of funded my first round of translations once I was in the country. that was specifically to translate contemporary women writers. And I think that was around the time that I started working on Olga's short stories.
1: And how easy was it financially after that funding finished to kind of um, keep translating whilst getting your foot in the door?
2: It was not easy. Um, I never really know what to say when. People who are starting out in the field of translation ask me these questions because I can't really honestly recommend this as a career, at least not in the U.S. Um, I think in the U.K., the payment rates have been more standardized, which is great. I think the situation is improving in the U.S. So I have always found alternate sources of funding. Right now I'm on a wonderful, very generous fellowship from the Coleman Center at the New York Public Library. Um, I did a PhD at Northwestern after my time in Poland um, in order to be able to continue writing and translating and reading while receiving a kind of minimal stipend. Um, And now I... Maybe if I if I translated more books than what I would actually like to do, because I also write, and that's really important to me, and I want to kind of start focusing more on that. But if I did take all of the translations that I'm offered, for instance, I might be able to earn a living. I'm not sure. I live. I live my, I'm now based in Los Angeles, although I'm spending this year in New York. And these are both very expensive cities. Um, and there's also this issue in the United States with health care it's yeah. very difficult to um, get good health care as a freelancer here
0: can Can we go back to the the polish issue and, and polish literature i'm I'm interested when you when you made the choice to Specialise in Polish. Did, were you were you kind of thinking this is a, a niche where there's possibility and there are great writers who aren't being heard? I mean, what are as a translator, what are the relative merits of taking on a kind of well-known language and culture versus a, a perhaps less well-known one?
2: I think that there are niches to be found anywhere, and I have always been guided in my translation choices by real, a real sense of passion and connection, um, which I instantly felt with Olga's short fiction, for example. Um, so I think to compare Polish with Spanish, which is my other main language, uh, I mean, obviously Spanish is a huge market, but I also, it's almost so big that it's meaningless to say Spanish. I mean, I translate only Argentine writers and kind of well, again, only people whose books I just really, I find and I fall in love with them or people, I lived in Buenos Aires for seven years before moving back to the U.S. two years ago. Um, I have translated some people with whom I've connected with on a personal level and I feel like, I don't know how I would articulate what my niche is, but I guess I'm sort of like developing a personal brand based predicated exclusively on my reading sensibility um and then you tend
0: to translate living writers
2: i only have translated i'm trying to make sure this is true i'm pretty sure i've only translated living writers okay um i so my partner boris strelyuk is a brilliant translator of dead authors and um he and Michael Hoffman were talking about that a little bit in Edinburgh when we were there in August. Michael was saying that um, one of the great benefits of joking, of course, one of the great benefits of translating dead writers is that they can't interfere with your translation. <laughs> <laughs> have Which you had, I think.
1: Have you sorry. had much interference?
2: Not at all. Time? I've never had people keep asking me that recently, and I'm not sure where. Um, I mean, that would be a nightmare. I have never had anyone, although everyone speaks English, right? At least some English, or at least they think they speak English. But I have never had anyone go over my translation and and send feedback. Um, so I was
1: I was reading an interview with the translator Sam Taylor, who translates um, the French author Layla Slimani's work, and he was saying how he had absolutely zero contact with her whilst translating both her books. Is that unusual? Do do you tend to always have some sort of rapport with your authors?
2: That's interesting because I just heard an interview with her um, in which she lavished his translations with um, really generous praise. So, um, yeah. um,
0: Do you have a similar level of spoken fluency in these languages as well as uh written and reading and and writing are you are you able to sort of talk polish literature in polish or what what language would those conversations with the author be happening in
2: i've always had my correspondence with the authors be in their language just as kind of a sign of respect i guess um olga and i did a book tour here in the united states which obviously all of the events took place in English. So at some point, and her English has, she's really been working hard in the last couple of years to improve it. So at some point we kind of started to switch over a little bit to English just because we were, that was what we were doing. Um, but all of our emails, et cetera, in Polish. My Spanish is now, my spoken Spanish is now better than my spoken Polish just because I lived in argentina much more recently and for a longer period of time um but to to just quickly go back to eleanor's question i i usually am open to being in touch with with my authors as i'm doing the translation but i'm not like constantly um sending them installment i've never sent people installments actually and i usually don't ask them questions because I feel that um, there's so many steps before I would get to that point. So if there's something I really, it's so hard nowadays to find things that you really can't decipher via the internet. Um, it's, I, it almost never happens that there's like a reference or something that I can't track down. If that does happen, then I ask other native speakers of the language, because I also think it's so important not to over explain in a translation. So if the, if you go to the author and they say like, oh, this was as happened, um, for instance, in the case of my translation of an Argentine novel called August by Romina Paola, there was a name that I couldn't figure out no Argentines could figure it out either. I finally went at the urging of the feminist press here in New York, which published the book. I went to Romina and I said, I, I don't know what this is. And she she explained that it was, so this was an autobiographical novel. And this name was the name of her childhood, Dog. And I, for a while, I inserted Dog into the English translation. And then I took it out at the last minute, just before the book went into print, because I felt like you know, Argentine readers don't know that either. It's not, it's not like it's a common name for a dog that people would instantly understand, referred to an animal. So, um, I I don't want to know more background information than the reader in Polish or Spanish would know.
1: And how long does it take you to translate, say, for instance, Olga's novel *Flights*? How long does it roughly take you? And are you doing more than one book on the go? Um.
2: Flights was a strange case, so I had translated about half of it over the course of the 10 years during which I was trying to get a publisher for the whole, and then I translated the rest of it very quickly, in about a month, because Jacques wanted to publish it. I can't remember exactly why, but there was some reason. I think he was trying to get it ready for the London Book Fair or something, Um, and... Um, so I just kind of rushed through the rest of the book, but also it was a book that I knew very well at that point, obviously right now I'm translating a crazy book by Olga, um, called the books of Jacob, which is a thousand pages long. And it's set in the 18th century. And she spent 10 years researching all these different voices, um, from all these different educational levels and regional backgrounds. And so it's, I keep pushing back the the deadline. I'm only on page three hundred of does a thousand.
1: She share, when, when a book um, has been so heavily researched by the author, does she share some of that research with you, or do you do your own independent research as well? You
2: know, I think that would be great if she did share our research. We we have like a little. There's a little group of Olga translators, which is actually not that little anymore, um, into other languages. So we're all sharing research with each other. Um, the French translation is already out. The Swedish was the first to come out. Serbian and Slovenian are out. German is about to come out. Um, so we're all kind of keeping track of things together. Olga is, I understand, um, this tendency, but she is inclined to just finish a book and move on. And she doesn't really have that much interest in going back to her published books, um, and I don't think, you know, she's not a she's a fiction writer, she's not a scholar, so I don't think that she kept super detailed records of her research. There's, at least she's never admitted to doing so,
0: to me. Does, does everyone always translate into their native language? Is that is that a kind of set rule, or are there people who are translating from, from one language that they've that is a secondary language to a tertiary one. I mean, I think, you know, one thinks about kind of Nabokov or Comrade or people people doing that, but in the contemporary game, is it almost always into your native, your native tongue?
2: Yes, I think it is almost always that. I would not translate into Polish or Spanish. I do write in Spanish also, um, but that feels totally different to me because part of my... Um, writing in spanish has to do with my foreignness and so i wrote a novel in spanish which is coming out in argentina next year um but but kind of part of the story of that which is embedded in the language is my coming to argentina from elsewhere and that doesn't have anything to do with someone else's story so i think that for me i will never have the absolute precision in Polish or Spanish to be able to translate into those languages. It's, it's so subtle and so difficult to translate into English, um, already. So I just, yeah. And I don't actually, I know that there are people who translate out of their native language. I think that's especially true of people who come from so-called minor languages where there just aren't that many english speaker native english speakers who know even something like ukrainian for example um there are quite a few ukrainians ukrainian writers etc who are trying to translate into english just because it's like a vast literature that's very dynamic and no one's really um or people are just beginning to translate it into contemporary ukrainian literature into english
1: and you say you're working on another book um, with Olga, the b- books of Jacob. Um, how usual is it? How common is it to, to keep up a relationship with one author and always be the go-to translator um, for that author? How competitive is it? Are there other people that
2: are vying for your job? I think it's fairly common to sustain that relationship, and and it makes sense if you think about it. Um, I mean, there are so many metaphors that you can use for translation and translators. But I've had a few authors, English language authors, describe to me the process of being translated into a language they don't know. And they all kind of mentioned that the translator is the person who reads them the closest and who almost becomes like a psychotherapist. They're really like seeing underneath the text. And you get to know the author. at least I feel that I get to know my authors so intimately, it would be a shame to kind of throw that away. Um, I feel like I know Olga. So of course I want to continue translating her. She has another English language translator who is Antonia Lloyd-Jones, who also is like an extraordinarily prolific translator of Polish literature. Um, And She's been friends with Antonia for I don't know how long twenty five years or something. Um, are you and,
0: conscious? Uh, so, sorry to butt in. Are you, are you conscious with um, different notions? Across languages of what makes good prose, Now, I don't speak Polish, but I, I do speak German, and I'm conscious that you know what, what is considered good prose in German in terms of sentence structure or length or, or complexity is very different to say what it would be in English. And I'm wondering if there are there are similar situations you've encountered in the the languages that you're working with, and how do you how do you address that?
2: I think that's a really fascinating question, which I think about a lot. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the examples of this is syntax. So word order is really different in German and Polish from how it is in English or in romance languages. You just see these sentences that go on and on and on and clause after clause after clause. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't have an answer for what to do about that. Um, I think that, the appro- there are so many very valid approaches. Um, Susan Bernofsky has a really interesting essay on revising translations. She translates from German um, in a wonderful volume called In Translation, where she kind of, I think she mentions Walter Benjamin's task of the translator. Um, there, he talks about the way of meaning, which can be interpreted Um, as word order so this idea that meaning is communicated very carefully by an author in a very specific order and you have to preserve that order in order to make a successful translation that transmits the spirit of the original and um, some people take that very literally so Samuel Weber has a book um, about Benjamin where he he advocates for keeping, preserving everything exactly as it is. Susan Bernofsky has a more kind of nuanced approach where she likes to think about how the sentence ends, so always keeping in mind where a sentence is going. Um, I think it really depends and, and on British the... does
0: Polish have a full case structure like German? Is it, is it inflected in a way that uh, you know, French or English wouldn't necessarily be?
2: It has a fuller case structure than German, which is to say that the case structure has been more perfectly preserved than okay. it has been in Russian or German, um, which means that the, the word order is free. So if, if I say Jenny eats a sandwich versus Sandwich eats Jenny, it doesn't matter because the ending of sandwich it's shows.
0: It's right?
2: Exactly. Um, So that, but that's just one example of this, of um, the question that you're asking, which is kind of how to evaluate, first of all, how to evaluate as a foreigner, the quality of a text, and then how to translate what you think is presumably, uh, hopefully what you think is a really great book into a totally different system, not only a different culture, but a different literary system of evaluation. Um, And I don't, I think it's a really complex question. And I'm often tempted to be an editor as well as a translator. I mean, another thing is, editing is completely different. Books in Polish and books in Argentine Spanish are not really edited. Like I have the manuscript for for Olga's book, The Books of Jacob, I see she sent the Word document to me before she turned it into her publisher. And I compare that with the final book. I mean, it's a thousand page book, and it'll have like occasionally every 30 or 40 pages, a slight rephrasing in one sentence, but that could never happen here in the US. Like, Books are so heavily... I mean, she wouldn't have... She would have ended up publishing a 600-page book here instead of a 1,000-page book.
1: And would that have been to its detriment?
2: I can't really... I can't really say. I mean, I think both systems really have great advantages. I like I like both. And as the mediator between them, I'm still trying to kind of figure out how, how active my interventions should be.
1: And, and how... Um... Tempting, do you find it to, especially if it hasn't been edited, to kind of improve on a text whilst you're translating it and by that kind of veering away from the the author's tone a little bit in doing so?
2: It's very tempting for me. I don't know if it necessarily requires veering away from the author's tone. So much as in an ideal editing process, you kind of just help them achieve the perfect culmination of their tonal intentions. But I think that what I would like to do more of in the future is something I've done a little bit of already, which is to kind of get get into the translation in the very early stages. So before the book is actually published and really like collaborate with the writer on making the final text in both languages um i can't there's not really much i can do with the books of jacob which i mean olga is also like a completely brilliant expert writer and i definitely don't mind having those 400 pages that might have been cut in were she american but um i i always like Probably unconsciously, as I'm translating a sentence, I certainly make it sound as good as possible in English, so always there's a little bit of editing happening.
0: How much uh, cultural context do you do you find yourself having to give? I, mean, I, I remember talking to a Russian friend of mine about Bulgakov, and i said I'd, I'd read the Master of Margarita and it, had, it kind of had left me somewhat cold and she said, "Well, look, there's whole like endless jokes and references to Moscow in the thirties and things like that that you know not only." Do you not get it because you don't speak Russian, but because you're you're not sort of, you know, in in the Milo at the time. How much of that that sort of explanation are you are you having to do?
2: I think less because I am translating contemporary writers, but I do think that I mean there are always little things that probably again unconsciously I'm supplementing in the smallest possible ways, um, even just little, like, descriptions of cityscapes or food or um, kind of day I feel like daily things are actually the most difficult to translate because they tend to be the things that are the most taken for granted, but also the kind of fundamental fabric of society and therefore very important to any book. Um, and I think for that reason, I also really wanted to live in the countries from which I was translating texts um again my my experiences in Argentina are more recent but I do go back to Poland pretty frequently so that I just like am able to make sure that I'm in on all of those references rather than just like seeing a word and knowing its its definition which isn't enough
1: And and what's the relationship with your editor, and does your editor compare both texts? Is he or she able to speak both languages, and do you ever get criticism, or um, do you ever have to change your translation?
2: I haven't had that for Polish, although Jacques Testard does something which is helpful, which is to compare the French translation, um, which has so far been faster than... English translation um which is good because it often of course like we're two the French translator whose name is Marla Laurent is a completely different person from me and she's making different decisions about how to interpret things so often his questions about divergences don't result in changes but because it just it turns out that we took the sentence in a different direction but but that's fine but it's good i like it because it it causes me to really reflect on on the nature of the choices that i'm making and then obviously if in a thousand page book for instance what if i miss a sentence at some point like jacques will find that which is reassuring to know
0: where do you see the role of technology with translation both in terms of do you think that kind of google translate AI-led things could potentially eclipse the human there, but also in terms of, you know, do you use a a digital dictionary, as it were? Do you use digital aids in in your own work?
2: Oh, I definitely do. And I can't wrap my mind around the fact that people used to not have that. I just, um, I rely very heavily on the internet to do my job. Although, I mean, then, in fairness, if the internet goes out for a few minutes. I kind of enjoy having that space and that quiet to kind of just do it on my own. But what, I, what do, you I, do you
1: use? Do you word reference? Is something as simple as that, or do you have special programs? And
2: no, I don't have special programs. That I I think it's a, so. It's a little bit different for Spanish, which you could use word reference for. But for Polish, there's a great um Polish only dictionary that gives all the possible, kind of like the Oxford English Dictionary for Polish. Um, And that's all online. And I use Google Translate. Um, It's pretty good for Polish. It, I mean, you know, it improves by the day. It's very hard to use those tools for Spanish because there's so much regional variation. I, I find that Google Translate always gives me gibberish for Spanish. But Um, but it can come up with interesting terms of phrase for Polish. I don't know, probably, I mean, I will be killed by every translator I know for saying this, but probably it could translate some literature. It can't quite do it right now, but I think, you know, in a decade, Google Translate could translate, I don't know, like, um, mystery novel or something from Spanish, totally fine. I think that's totally possible. Forgive
0: forgive my ignorance, but what is Word Reference? It's not a a piece of software I'm familiar with.
2: It's it's a website, maybe Eleanor wants to...
1: Well, it's it's kind of what we used it. I I studied at French university. It's what kind of every language student and beyond would just use just input a word and it can translate from English to French, French to English, Spanish to, you know, basically every. Okay. I don't know what well, I don't know if you know Jenny if it doesn't cater to any to certain languages. You
2: know, I'm not sure. I've never used it for Polish, which might mean that it doesn't have Polish, but it doesn't necessarily. I just use different websites. I've used it To look up things in German and French Mm. for sure
1: but it's very good because it kind of gives you reference links to learn more about a word and takes you to forums where if there is something untranslatable other people have discussed it at length
0: I'm really go go ahead Jenny
2: oh I just wanted to say that I'm really in favor of technology I love Duolingo for instance the language learning app Mm -hmm. um I think that stuff is really helpful and I see no reason to resist.
0: Do you do uh, non-literary translation? Do you do you know commercial documents or, or anything like that?
2: I don't. I did do quite a bit of academic translation, which is like literary adjacent, especially the people that I was working with and I enjoyed that and I enjoyed kind of getting into fields like art history or a little bit of history. but I'm not doing that at the moment. And I have no immediate intention of doing that again.
1: What's the best route in for kind of people that want to start out in the industry? Would you say it would be starting with commercial translation and then kind of migrating into literary or going straight for what you want?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it, it just depends on what you want. I'm not sure that there's that there needs to be any progression. Like if you're. If you want to be a technical translator, there's no reason why you should start by translating Tolstoy and vice versa. Um, I don't think that there's any special benefit to knowing how to say terms for the innards of a computer, for instance. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't in either language. Like, I, I think, I mean, there are. It's it's hard to become a literary translator but it's also hard to become a writer um so it just requires like a lot of I think it does require like another day job at, at first and possibly for a long time um but I but it requires like a lot of humility a lot of dealing with reject I've been rejected from absolutely everywhere and absolutely everything And it's good because I've gotten totally used to it for my own writing, for Olga's writing, for everybody. Um, It's really important to just kind of immerse yourself in the literature of the language that you're translating from and the culture. And same for your target language and also the publishing industry. And it's really important to kind of get to know editors and be sensitive to what they want and what they need. And it's a very long process.
0: Do you have any particular translator heroes or heroines? I, I know that The Economist recently ran an, a wonderful obituary for the woman who translated Asterix into English as well as other things. Um, and I think it's sort of the famous Tolstoy translators and, and just stuff like that. I suppose the King James Bible people. Are there, is, do you feel you're sort of part of a, a great tradition?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I went to do a PhD at Northwestern University in Chicago because I had heard Claire Kavanaugh give a really rousing talk about her translation in Biswada Szymborska. So that's like specifically Polish, but I think, you know, she's she's a really brilliant, she she and Shamborska won the Nobel Prize and um, very deservedly so. Um, yeah, I have a lot of... Just kind of in that generation models, I think Antonio Lloyd-Jones, whom I've mentioned, is great. Frank Wynn is fantastic. Um, Ellen Elias Borsac is an incredible translator from um, Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian. Um, so, yeah, I have a lot of kind of immediate role models.
1: And in terms of if there's a certain writer that you'd really love to translate for, how do you go about, is it ever worth kind of just putting yourself forward? How does that happen?
2: Yes, so that's what I've always done. I have noticed that other people don't do this, but I think it's really important to first see if they have already been translated into English. And if they have, I think it's really essential to reach out to the person who translated them um because as I said before it is common to have an ongoing relationship between an author and a translator so it's yeah it just seems like common courtesy to to do that first and also do that as early as possible like if I think that I might be interested in translating someone I do that immediately to just kind of get a sense of whether or not it might be possible and what's the reaction
1: like usually is it kind of hostile like get off my turf
2: or is it no I've never had that um I well yeah I I was introduced to Olga Tokartuk by Antonio Lloyd-Jones um and I am now translating a wonderful Argentine writer whom I know personally and who asked me to do this translation but he, he's also just like a really nice guy who has spent some time in the U.S. and he had already been translated by, I guess, two other women, maybe three. But I, I wrote to all of them um, to add, just to like let them know that I was considering doing this, that Fede and I had talked about it. Um, and they were all really happy. They were all like doing other projects. One of them was finishing her dissertation. One of them was writing her own book. Um that there could obviously be a situation in which the person just says no i'm already working on that in which case you just i would just move on
0: and could you tell us a bit about your memoir um both the you know the the experience of writing your own material but also your decision to write that in spanish
2: yeah um i couldn't have thought of this book um, which is called Homesick in English, and it's coming out in the U.S. in September. I would never have thought of doing it in English. Um, I wanted to write a story based on my childhood, so it'll be published as a novel in Spanish, which is how I, I first conceived it. Um, but I wanted to tell my friends in Argentina stories that were inspired by my childhood and what is for them a totally exotic land. Um, in Spanish, the novel begins with the scene of uh, a tornado. Um, so very much I, like... And
0: with you, the, the two characters hiding in the pantry, right? Like playing with yeah, the dogs. Exactly. At it. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, but, so it's very much like Oklahoma for export. <laughs> um, but...
0: and I it, wrote But it, you describe it as a novel or how do you... How do you kind of classify it?
2: I definitely wrote it as a novel. And then the editor that I ended up working with here in the U.S. had the suggestion of calling it a memoir, which also freed me up in the English language version to talk about... Um, so the most of the book takes place during my childhood and adolescence. But once... Once she switched the genre to memoir, I felt kind of intellectually freed. So I got out of that, that era and I was able to talk about my current thinking on language, for example, in translation, which comes in more towards the end of the book, but runs kind of like a thread um, through the whole as captions to the photographs that I put into the English version, which are not in the Spanish version.
1: And so you're writing both, so you're writing the English version?
2: I wrote the English version, yeah.
1: And and what about in terms of it being translated into other languages?
2: Yeah, so actually very exciting news. We just got an offer from Wydawnice Literackie in Poland, which is a fantastic publisher. They also publish Olga. Um, So they're going to publish... I mean, we're taking the offer. So, they are going to publish it in Polish and they're going to find a translator. I hope I get to be a little bit involved in that process. There are some translators into Polish I really like. Um, could but you explain it into Polish, do you think? No. I could not have.
1: Uh, and how how difficult you find it, kind of. Um, not being a bit overbearing with possible other translations, considering your background as a translator and your interest in in it.
2: Yeah, I think that is a really. We'll see how that plays out. I'll keep you posted. I think that I might be exactly the kind of author I would hate to meet as a translator. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I think that's only natural, though. Yeah, I mean,
0: I'm fascinated by the, the kind of specifics of this. So, so you wrote it in Spanish. Did you then literally translate it, or did you kind of? write it again in English, or am I just thinking about the process in a a naive and foolish way?
2: No, I, you know, I started, um, I started writing the English version kind of midway through because I also had some American friends in Buenos Aires with whom I exchanged work. Um, And specifically, there's a novelist named Maxine Swan, who she's from, US but she's lived in Argentina for something like 20 years now um but she still writes in English and she she was like a great she was a wonderful mentor for me as well while I was there and um she encouraged me to start writing it in English and um so I did so are there uh, any is it different
1: in any way do you find yourself changing things around
2: Yeah. I mean, and that also goes back to this question of what is good, what is good literature and realizing that that really varies from place to place. Um, the pace was intent. So it's very, especially when you're submitting, it's very important in the U S for something very dramatic to happen in the opening pages. You're supposed to grab the reader's attention and then be very efficient. This is like the American way. Um, That isn't the case for Argentina. So the pace that I originally had, and this is a a response that I always get from editors when I'm submitting translations, um, that it's just too slow and too atmospheric. And I certainly got that for flights many times. Um, Do
0: you think there's something in the way that translated fiction is... is published or or kind of covered and i remember a while ago we had laura barber who runs granta the publishing house in the uk which has run a lot of stuff in translation she said when she came in she felt that they were publishing stuff with sort of very spare covers that made it look like very worthy but a bit boring like kind of rivito was how she described it and she felt that like this was a mistake and that you know these were amazing books and and that they shouldn't be sold as a sort of you know good for the soul but maybe not very exciting
2: thing yeah that is definitely an issue i think that's getting better um i always was so frustrated especially because that is also it varies from place to place so i found that people really expected so-called eastern european literature which poles would never call themselves eastern european they're central europeans but so-called eastern european literature is supposed to teach us how to suffer basically so (laughs) people want harrowing tales of wartime alcoholism and rape and whatever. And then from Latin American literature, they just want like sex. It's, it's really frustrating that these stupid stereotypes do still continue to influence the publishing industry because the you know, editors think like this is what their readers expect. Therefore, um, but yeah, I I mean, Riverhead, for instance, which is Olga's publisher here in the U.S., they have a brilliant designer, their head of design, who's named Helen Yentes, does such innovative, colorful covers. They're the same for the translations as they are for the American fiction and nonfiction. Um, obviously, Fitzcarraldo has its own, in the U.K., has its own kind of signature brand, which might fit with the uh, very like aware of its own gravitas idea but um but yeah I think in general that that idea that translations have to be weightier has been an impediment to them finding a wider readership
1: well hopefully that will improve fingers crossed well thank you so much Jenny we're sadly running out of time here but um it's been a pleasure speaking to you and we're looking forward to, to reading your forthcoming work
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.
1: So Simon, how did you think that that went?
0: Uh, Skype's always challenging, but I think we're getting better at it. And I found the discussion really fascinating. We'd never had a translator on before and she gave us an insight into a whole world that's crucial but has these fascinating questions like how you deal with polish case structure in english and how much context you give and is it okay to use a digital dictionary Um, and again really did what we try and do on the show which is lifting the lid on an unfamiliar world what do you think
1: well it's a shame actually because literary translation has always been something i've been interested in but she really did put me off because she did say (laughs) no one should attempt the career and it does sound really tough Um, i wouldn't even know how you'd get into it really Um, and she wasn't really able to give that much advice on how you do get into it she seems to have got well she's obviously brilliant but she's got lucky as well
0: yeah i think i think she was pretty clear that you're not going to make a soul living from doing it and you've got to do other stuff but she's had quite a lot of success doing that as well um anyway ellie what have you been up to of late
1: uh, of late, I've been doing a lot of gig reviews for Telegraph, um, including Billie Eilish, who I was very uh, grumpy about because I couldn't hear her sing due to the hysterical fans because that is a, very much a new phenomenon, worse than Beatlemania, I think, is hysterical 15-year-old girls.
0: Um. I'm going to come clean and say I don't know who Billie Eilish no, it's is. She's
1: quite a young, kind of up-and-coming uh, singer, uh, Anyway, I don't need to sell Billie Eilish to, to my podcast listeners, but um, she's good, actually.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, I have been working on this magazine piece uh, for Bloomberg Businessweek this week and working towards a deadline tomorrow, so busy with that as ever. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom.
1: And me, Eleanor Halls.
0: Our producer is Nicola Keane. Zara Hankir handles our social media. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar.
1: You can find us on Instagram at uh, Always Take Notes and we're on Take Notes Always on Twitter uh, and we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes.
0: And if you fancy leaving a review on Patreon, we're at Always Take Notes as well. Our next episode out in two weeks time will be the writer Andrew Hankinson. We recorded it live at the World told Festival and it's going to be a real treat.
1: Enjoy.